we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Dear listener, a special treat for you on the podcast. I have with me an economist, Dr. Stephen Hale, who is a lecturer in economics at the University of Adelaide, where he's been lecturing in financial and macroeconomics since 2002. Welcome aboard, Stephen. Thanks very much, Trevor. That's great. So just uh, a little bit about you um, so that people understand your background and qualifications. So um, y- you've been teaching at uh, at the University of Adelaide, and I see here it says, Stephen is a modern monetary theorist. What's a modern monetary theorist? How is that different? Um, well, don't be put off by the word theory. Modern monetary theory is just an approach to – it's a brand name, really. Um, it's the first serious challenge to what we call neoclassical macroeconomics, which is the approach to talking about the economy, which nearly everybody is familiar with. In decades, I mean, arguably since the 1930s, really. And it's in the news a lot at the moment. Um, We were in the news quite a bit in January because we had Bernie Sanders' chief economic advisor, Stephanie Kelton, with us here in Adelaide. And she was in all the uh, Australian, virtually all the Australian newspapers and on TV while she was here. We have a, a very prominent a modern monetary theory or MMT economist who uh, I believe actually was the first person to apply that brand name to come up with the, the, the name modern monetary theory. Uh, his name is Bill Mitchell. And um, I hope people enjoy the podcast we're doing, but he also did a, a long podcast, um, which uh, after they've watched this one, people might like to uh, look, look out with Alan Kohler, who people will see every evening on ABC News. Um, a couple of days ago, which explains MMT in a lot more detail, perhaps, uh, than the, uh, than we're going to do here. And it would be good to look at perhaps after we've we've introduced MMT. Okay, I'll put some links on the, mm. on the show notes so people can find those. Yep, yep. Um, if the the big difference between us, um, well, there's lots of big differences between us and uh, the old-fashioned approach to thinking about um about macroeconomics but the big difference that's in the news at the moment is that we have always had a very different way of looking at the appropriate role for the federal government's budget in the economy and particularly we see deficit spending by governments and of course in Australia at the moment there's going to be a considerable amount of deficit spending much more than uh, people would have imagined was possible a few months ago. Uh, we see it in a very different way to how orthodox economists uh, see it. So, so, um, so basically the sort of traditional conservative government theory has been that, that government deficits are bad and surpluses are good, and they kind of liken it to a household budget, whereas a household you wouldn't spend more than you're earning. Uh, that's considered bad form but I sort of I've, I looked at a bit of what you'd written and I think I looked at one of the YouTube videos that you did and it seems to me that the 
the, the mistake people make is when equating the government to a household, what they're doing is they're forgetting that the government actually prints money. And so when the government owes money, it's really it's able to fulfil its promise to repay because it's very easy for the government to print money. Is, is that kind of a big part of it? We don't say printing because that makes that that, that evokes images of people carrying around wheelbarrow lo- loads of fifty dollar notes. First of all, and secondly, and um, we're in the process at the moment of uh, moving rapidly towards the elimination of physical currency in our economy entirely. Um, that's the way it seems, anyway. Uh, and from, for example, there's there's been no increase in the amount of physical currency in the economy, and there won't be in the next few months either. Um, they do uh, electronically create money every time they spend. I'll explain how public finances work very, very simply in a moment. Before I do, I perhaps ought to say that before I came to Australia, I used to train bankers, including people working in the Bank of England. So what I'm saying is literally true. I'm not making it up as I go through the story. Um, I would add that the best old-fashioned orthodox economists actually know this and they are lying to people some of the time but they justify that to themselves because they think there are good reasons for lying to people if people want to check out later on uh, and again I can give you a link to this the very first Nobel Prize winner in economics was somebody called Paul Samuelson very famous economist he wrote the first modern first-year economics textbook in the 1940s. Uh, Various editions of it have been in use down the years and probably until the 1980s. It was the best-selling textbook in economics. So people watching this podcast, if they've ever done first-year economics at uni, as one or two of them might have done, they may well have used Paul Samuelson's book. Well, there's a video of him in an interview, I think, from the 1970s, where he says, basically, this is a superstition are just as old-fashioned religions have a lot of myths which are there to scare people and to discipline them. So it's useful for people to believe that the government budget has to be balanced, at least on average over time, even though this is not true, because that's a way of disciplining otherwise irresponsible politicians. Now, that's the justification that they give for lying to people about public finance. Personally, I think if you have irresponsible politicians, you should look for some more politicians. You shouldn't lie to people. I don't think as a social scientist, it is a valid justification for the narrative which you use when you talk to the general public and to say that um, you're lying to people and that's okay because you're doing it in what you believe to be their own interests. So the lie is that the government budget needs to be balanced because they want people's personal budgets to be balanced, and it's an example? Is that, is that what you're saying? Because they think politicians otherwise would go willy-nilly spending irresponsibly. Um, they think otherwise, or this is what they say, um, and uh, um, I, I don't go along with this, but they, they argue that otherwise politicians, if only they realised, how much freedom of action they have, would be completely irresponsible, would spend without limit and uh, would create hyperinflation. I think that's complete nonsense. Um, But as I said, if you have irresponsible politicians, you should find some responsible ones to 
to replace them with. If I could just explain about the the way that it actually works, maybe. Um, the first thing to say is I would ask people, although this is difficult to do after decades of listening to a misleading narrative, but to get out of their head any parallels at all between their own budgets, our own budgets, and the federal government's budget. Because you and I, and every business organisation in Australia, and all the not-for-profit organisations in Australia, and local governments, and even state and territory governments, are currency users. As a currency user, before I can spend Australian dollars, I have to go and get them. I have to earn them, or I have to take them out of savings that I've built up in the past, or I have to borrow them. Of course, if I borrow them, I am imposing a burden on myself in the future because I have to repay those dollars that I've borrowed and I have to pay interest and I've got to find the dollars from somewhere if I'm not going to go bankrupt or be in severe financial distress uh, in the future. Well, that's true of you and me. As I said, it's true of the small business around the corner. It's true of the giant corporation. It's even true of the Victorian or New South Wales state governments. They are currency users. They're not currency issuers. The federal government is in a completely different position to the rest of us. Maybe in childhood, or perhaps you've, uh, perhaps this is in your children's, when your children were young, you watched the Sesame Street program. And in Sesame Street, uh, there, was a, there was a tune that the, uh, they uh, used to um, sing. Uh, one of these things is not like the others. I won't try and sing it now. But they were, they'd have various items that would be bobbing up on the screen And by the end of the song, you were supposed to identify the one that was different to all the others. Now, the federal government's budget is different to absolutely every other budget in the Australian monetary system. Um, And it's different because the federal government is a currency issuer. The federal government spends dollars every day, and every single dollar that they ever spend is a new dollar. So when people talk about uh, printing money, as I said, I don't like that term. Um, If we talk about issuing currency, that's not something new for the government to do. It's something that the government has always done, and it does every single day. Every dollar the government spends is a new dollar. Well, that's different from you and me. They don't go and find dollars first before they spend them. So it's not the case that they raise dollars through taxation or borrowing and then spend um that that would be the case for a state government it's not the case for the federal government the federal government spends new dollars into circulation could you just describe the physic uh, how that physically happens because in a situation where the government is spending more than it's getting in so well i haven't mentioned the getting in yet Right. No. Let's leave that to one side for the moment. The government, every dollar that the government spends is a new dollar. Taxes don't come into it. They don't get taxes in. They destroy dollars with taxation. So a dollar spent by the federal government places a dollar in our banking system somewhere. Now, it matters who it goes to. It could go to you and me. Uh, It could go to the ABC. It could go to Gina Reinhart. It goes somewhere but it's a new dollar. Now, of course, if they just spent dollars into circulation, 
and they never deleted any of those dollars again, you'd expect that there'd be a total amount of spending in our economy which would outstrip the productive capacity of the economy, that we'd get shortages and that we'd get inflation that would undermine the value of the dollar. And if you took it far enough, of course, uh, you could create hyperinflation and people might stop using dollars entirely. And that's where taxes come in. But taxes do not raise money to pay for federal government spending. That's not what happens. Yep, I, I, I'm recalling now taxes from your video. It was dollars. The, the, yes, that's the government, what they do. The government creates. Taxes throw dollars in the bin. Mm-hmm. Taxes vacuum up dollars and throw them away. That's what ta- taxes do. In fact, taxes play two roles macroeconomically. First of all, this is a sort of abstract role, I, I suppose, they create a demand for the Australian dollar. So if we if we imagine what we didn't have a monetary system yet and you were introducing a currency for the first time and you wanted people, if you were in government, to be prepared to do jobs for you, then you'd want them to accept these dollars that you were creating and, and to work for them. The way in which you'd create a demand for dollars would be that you'd impose a tax. So you'd say, in a month's time or in six months' time, you're going to have to pay me some Australian dollars or you're going to be in big trouble. Uh, How are you going to get these dollars? Well, you're either going to have to work for me, the government, or you're going to have to provide some service to people who work for me, the government, but you're going to have to get these dollars. Now, time and again through history, This is how a currency has been introduced. It's been introduced by creating what we call a tax liability in the private sector. And by doing that, you create a demand for your currency and then you spend some of that currency into circulation. You can't tax it out of circulation until you spent it into circulation. So logically, government spending comes first. In this case, it's obvious The government can't go and collect taxes from anyone in Australian dollars because they don't exist yet. So you have to spend the dollars into the banking system before you tax some of them out of the banking system again. And then it's important for you over time to tax enough of them out of the system so that they maintain their value. So government spending creates Australian dollars in the banking system and actually also in banks, the accounts that the banks have themselves at the Reserve Bank of Australia, at the central bank. Um, we then tax some of those dollars. Sorry, this, uh, all the background noise is, is um, it's putting me off a bit. Um, the, you t- we tax some of those dollars back out of circulation again in order to maintain the value of the dollar and to prevent there being inflation because there's too much spending on not enough goods and services that are available. Um, however... Although taxes play a vital role in the system, it is not the case that um, taxes and government spending have to be at the same level. And indeed, historically, this is not normal. In in Australia, for example, for about 80% of the years since federation, the, the federal government has run a deficit. It's spent more dollars into the system than it's taxed out of the system. And Australia is not unusual in this. This is the case in the great majority of countries. And for technical reasons, if you run huge persistent trade surpluses, this might not be true of you. So if we were talking about Singapore or Norway, but for almost all countries over time, almost all the time, 
governments have historically run deficits. This is nothing new. In the case of the US, across your entire lifetime, the only period of significant government surpluses was uh, the last four years of the last century under Bill Clinton. Other than that, the US government has always run deficits. And it's important that governments do run deficits because the government's deficit is our surplus. So when the government spends more than it taxes, it's putting more dollars into our bank accounts than it's taking out of them. It's making a net deposit of dollars in the banking system. It's helping to create, in other words, uh, um, sustainable, strong private sector balance sheets. That's all a government deficit is. And when, when worry, go on. When, when would be a good time, if any, to run a surplus? When would it be justified? Because our our conservative government was crowing about bringing the budget into surplus. So, when, if any, is it necessary to have a surplus? Well, first of all, they weren't going to manage to bring it into surplus because even before this virus hit, the uh, government budget, having been for a few months. Uh, in surplus was back in deficit again. But um, the only time that it is appropriate to run a government uh, surplus is when it is necessary to limit total spending in the economy, total spending in our economy by the government and the private sector and the rest of the world in order to avoid accelerating inflation. So you can imagine if you're in a country with a big trade surplus, where there's lots of demand for goods and services produced in our economy from the rest of the world, and where the private sector is also spending heavily, where the private sector is not saving but instead going into debt and spending a great deal, then under those circumstances, if the economy is at full employment, running at full capacity, and if inflation is an issue, then rarely it will be appropriate to run a government budget surplus. But usually what happens when politicians um, ill-advisedly aim for a surplus and may even achieve one, is one of two things. Paul Keating managed a fleeting surplus at the end of the 1980s. You remember what happened in the early 1990s, which is a nasty recession. What is a government budget surplus? It's when they take more dollars out of the banking system than they put into it, in other words, they are vacuum cleaning dollars out of the system. What that does is it um, drives the private sector into debt. And if the private sector is either unwilling or unable to take on more debt, it simply causes a recession which pushes the government budget back into deficit again anyway, because tax receipts crash and welfare spending goes up. And that's exactly what happened in the early 1990s under Paul Keating and Bob Hawke when Australia had double-digit unemployment, or I should say the last time Australia had double-digit unemployment. Um, the other thing that can happen, during the Howard Costello government, for eight out of ten years, the, the federal government ran budget surpluses. This is a unique period in Australian economic history, and yes, the Conservatives look back on it fondly, but even the Labour Party, um, foolishly in my view, are intimidated by it. Uh, the economy during those years, of course, did not have a recession. But what happened was that we went from a country where uh, um, in the early 1990s, our household debt to gross domestic product ratio was 40%. 
which meant we had one of the lowest levels of household debt in the world amongst high-income countries. And we had relatively affordable property. By the end of the Howard Costello era, we had a household debt to GDP ratio of over 120%. When you look at household debt to after-tax or disposable incomes, it's nearly 200% now. The only country in the entire world with a higher ratio than us is Switzerland. Nobody else. Consequently, what happened during the Howard Costello years was within a deregulated financial system, with the government encouraging people to drive up property prices even further within that system, we tanked up on household debt. Households are not currency issuers, obviously. They can't electronically create money. And so what we have managed to do over that decade is create a financial system which is much more vulnerable to shocks like the one we're in at the moment than it was previously and than it needed to be. Uh, There should not have been that financial deregulation and the property market bubble under Howard and Costello. We should not have had those government budget surpluses. That was a mistake. And of course, we never got anywhere near genuine full employment. Uh, We had genuine full employment in the 1960s when unemployment in Australia was typically 1.5% and when Robert Menzies almost lost an election in the early 60s when unemployment went above 2% and it was seen as a scandal. If a surplus takes money out of the economy, Mm -hmm. then wouldn't that ordinarily depress business activity and prices or, or it does so- it does if the private sector is not, not prepared to replace that money now i don't want to go into with you because mm. it, it's time consuming another time i wouldn't excite people to, yep. to uh, something called the monetary hierarchy but there are different forms of money in our economy we sometimes distinguish between vertical money and horizontal money vertical money is money spent into existence by the commonwealth government And when we have the benefit of that, then we sometimes say it creates net financial assets in the private sector. It means we've got money that we haven't borrowed into existence, you and and me. We don't have to pay it back. It's not acting as a constraint on us in the future. Um, uh, And the government debt, uh, which, remember, is just all those dollars the government has spent into existence that they haven't yet taxed back out of existence. That's all the government debt is. It's nothing to be scared about. There's not going to be a crisis relating to it. That is better thought of as the net money supply to you and me, to the private sector. The other form of money um, is money which private banks create, uh, which you and I borrow into existence from those banks and that we have to repay. And it is possible for an economy to continue to be robust and to grow for a number of years based on private sector borrowing, based on the private sector taking on more debt. But it's not sustainable in the long run. So that's one thing that a lot of people don't understand. Government deficits are perfectly sustainable. As long as they're not inflationary, the government is never going to run out of dollars because, as I've said, when they spend, they create new dollars. But, but, But private debt and government surpluses are unsustainable. A government budget surplus in a country without a big trade surplus will eventually drive the economy into a recession and can create a a major financial crash. 
Mm. Just thinking to uh, the, yesterday's announcement, so dear listener, we're recording on the 31st of March, so the day after a big announcement of $130 billion that the government promised to pay to people who are, or to businesses, who are then to pass it on to employees who, where the businesses are in trouble. And my question is, somewhere there is an account where these checks are coming out of, where the, where the government is sending checks to people or electronically depositing money into businesses' accounts. And th- that account, if money is going out at a, at a faster rate than it was previously, um, how does money physically get into that account? Does it come from the Reserve Bank or does somebody in the government simply sit at a computer and tap digits into a ledger and say, abracadabra, we now have a billion dollars is in this account that we will just start sending checks from? I can tell you how it works. Yes, I can tell you how it works. is unnecessarily complicated. Of course. I'm, I'm but I can, I, can, I can certainly tell you how it works. The way things work at the moment, and actually there's a whole group of, of uh, accounts and there is some involvement of private sector banks too because uh, in past years for um, bogus reasons uh, to do with uh, administrative uh, convenience or what they call efficiency, some of it's been privatised out. But basically there is a big account of the government at its central bank. Remember, this is an account with itself. It owns the Reserve Bank of Australia. Um, the uh, official public account. And if the government spends money, let's say they give it to you, then when that expenditure takes place, the Reserve Bank uh, transfers funds into an account. It's called an exchange settlement account that your bank has at the RBA and your bank credits your account. So that's how it comes to you. Now, the next question to ask is how do they top up the official public account? Again, the government's account. How come the government doesn't run out of dollars? Now, I'll tell you how it has happened in recent years. It didn't always used to happen like this. How it's happened in recent times is that we have got into the habit of the government issuing Treasury bonds issuing what people regard as government debt by auction to uh, financial institutions that uh, bid for these bonds on a on a uh, on a um, uh, a regular basis. Um, when the current system was introduced, I've said recently. Actually, the current system came in in 1982. That's just showing my age, so it's not all that recent. But when the current system came in, the reason for doing things the way it is done at the moment is not because the government needs to borrow money by issuing those bonds. The Reserve Bank, in a, a, a document which it put out in 1982, and actually it's on the RBA website still, there's a history of government bond issuance on the RBA website if people want to look it up. When they went to the auction system in 1982, it was because when the government spends more than it taxes, they put more into bank reserve accounts than they take out. And that floods the private banks with cash. And uh, for reasons I probably shouldn't go into, if that happens, 
the Reserve Bank's official interest rate, called the cash rate, everybody's heard about the cash rate, which is currently 0.25%, the Reserve Bank loses control over. It goes down. So in order, when, when we move to something like our current interest rate system, interest rates used to be administered in Australia in the 1970s, when they were freed up and left to the market, in order for the RBA to control the cash rate, it was necessary to drain that cash again from the banking system. And the way that cash was drained was from, from originally it was the Reserve Bank. Later on, the responsibility was transferred to the Australian Office of Financial Management, which is part of the Treasury. It was necessary for somebody to sell government bonds, which um, absorbed that cash again, took it out of the banking system. Um, this was also popular with fund managers because, of course, rather than them having transaction accounts with banks, they now, they now held uh, treasury bonds, which are highly liquid, absolutely safe, and that they got a, a good interest rate on. But things have changed in the last 11 days or so because the Reserve Bank has now started doing something called quantitative easing, which means they're buying those government bonds back again. So the system as it works at the moment, when the government spends more than it taxes, yes, they issue government bonds, which they sell to private investors, or what's called the primary market when they're first sold. But then immediately, or almost immediately, the Reserve Bank is coming along and buying those bonds on the secondary market and taking them back out of the system again. Now, the Reserve Bank is part of the federal government anyway. So the end result is that basically the Reserve Bank is just crediting the government's account. That's what's happening. But they're doing it indirectly. The government is, yes, it looks as though it's borrowing dollars from the private sector by issuing bonds. But then the government's Reserve Bank is buying those bonds on the secondary market. So you end up with the Reserve Bank, you could say, lending dollars to the government. It's even more absurd than this because the federal government then pays interest on these bonds, which it pays to the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank then accounts for these interest payments as profit. And guess what happens to Reserve Bank profits? It gets They go back to the government. Right, of course. So basically, okay. yes, the government is just spending without any financial constraint. The Reserve Bank is crediting a sell on its spreadsheet, which you can call the official public account if you like. The government is spending that money. If somebody doesn't understand how the system works, I can quite see that they might think that the government needs taxes to top up its account or the government needs to borrow to top up its account. That's not what ha- what's happening. What, what is happening at the moment basically is the RBA indirectly by via an accounting sleight of hand, is stuffing the the um, Treasury's account at the RBA with as many dollars as the Treasury wants to spend. That's what's happening. Okay. So in a sense, it's got nothing to do with any other country. Sometimes people talk about us sort of um, running deficits and borrowing from other countries as part of this process, but but that that's not part of it at all, right? So well, we don't the, ban the, that, foreign investors from buying yeah. treasury bonds. They they right. they don't they don't generally buy them in the primary market. But anyone can buy treasury bonds in the secondary market. So down the years, 
there has been a high demand for the Australian dollar in investment portfolios around the world. Our currency is the fifth or the sixth most heavily traded currency on the foreign exchange market. And the rest of the world has wanted to net save in Australian dollars. Uh, The counterpart of that is that until last year, we were running sort of a trade deficit. The right term is the current account deficit on our balance of payments. Um, We were not borrowing from the rest of the world in foreign currency, not overall. Our private sector debt, um, which is in foreign currency terms, uh, is um, the word is hedged. Basically, overall, Australia does not have foreign currency denominated debt. The rest of the world holds our currency. As far as the government is concerned, the federal government has no significant foreign currency debt at all. However, foreign investors own government bonds. They own quite a lot of them. The government has not been dependent on foreign investors to buy those bonds. However, they have not banned foreign investors from buying those bonds. That's why foreign investors hold them. Yep. Okay. If I can just sort of try and put this in my mind to get this straight. The the Reserve Bank provides, in a sense, cheap money to banks who then um, give it to the federal government in the way of buying a bond. So a bond is like an IOU from the federal government saying in in five years' time, I'll give you this money back plus 3% or, or whatever the interest Basically, rate so is. Basically, so is a $50 so- note. A $50 yes. note is an IOU from the government it, but it's yes. via the RBA, but it's just saying I'll yep. give you another $50 note. So the RBA, um, somebody in there sits at a computer in a ledger and just um, puts um, c- creates money, which it then lends at a cheap rate to um, major banks and people like that, who then, who then effectively uh, deposit that with the government in the form of a treasury bond and get an IOU back from the government? uh, Not really. Ah, I've got that wrong. Well, under normal circumstances, what happens? When the government spends more dollars than it taxes, then there is a transfer into private banks' exchange settlement accounts. If nothing else happened, there would be more funds in private sector Uh, banks exchange settlement accounts than they needed to hold. Now, the way in which the cash rate works, the cash rate is not an interest rate at which the RBA lends to anyone. It's not an interest rate at which the RBA borrows from anyone. It is a target the Reserve Bank publishes for the rate of interest at which it wants private banks to lend to each other overnight or for 24 hours. That's what the cash rate is. It's a key interest rate. The Reserve Bank Strictly speaking, when they make their cash rate announcements every month, they're not announcing the cash rate, they're announcing their target for the cash rate. Now, if there's too much cash in the banking system, then there will be more banks wanting to lend excess cash overnight to other banks than there are banks that need to borrow. And under those circumstances, the cash rate would fall below the Reserve Bank's target. The Reserve Bank does not want that to happen. In order to stop that happening, historically, when the government has spent more than it's taxed, putting additional reserves into the system to prevent the RBA from having to do anything drastic to defend its target cash rate, the Treasury issues government bonds. 
those government bonds drain off those excess reserves and prevent them putting downward pressure on the cash rate. So what, uh, what the end of this story basically is that it is the government spending that is funding the purchase of the Treasury bonds. It's not the Treasury bonds that's funding the purpose that the, the, the government spending. Now, everybody that works on the operational side in the Reserve Bank understands this perfectly well. And when the current system was introduced, because prior to 1982, the RBA often just stuffed cash into the government's account. Um, uh, uh, when it, the current system was introduced, it was explained very clearly. Government spending in excess of taxation, fiscal deficit, provides the cash in the private sector that, uh, that is then used for the bond purchases. The purpose of selling bonds is to drain those excess reserves from the banks under normal circumstances. And there's always a market for the bonds because you're getting a much better deal if you buy government bonds than if you hold balances at the RBA. So there's no problem selling them. But the system has just changed. They are now that they now basically are flooding the banks with excess reserves. Um, the RBA, in an email to one of my colleagues this week, said, we realise that over the next few weeks, the cash rate is likely to fall below our target. We will lose control of the cash rate. It will fall towards the rate of interest the Reserve Bank pays on all those excess exchange settlement account balances. That interest rate is not 0.25%, it's 0.1%. That was part of their announcement. The RBA pays interest on the accounts that banks have with it, almost at zero now, but it's been set at 0.1%. And what the Reserve Bank is doing is it's targeting the rate of interest on three-year government bonds. So they're buying government bonds in the secondary market. They're not just buying three-year government bonds. They're buying government bonds with a variety of terms to maturity but they have set themselves a target, which is to buy those government bonds until they've driven the prices of them up enough so that the interest rate on them is 0.25% equal to the cash rate. And they said they're prepared to do this without limit. Basically, that's setting the price of government bonds on the secondary market, and it's ensuring then that investors will be prepared to buy whatever government bonds the government wants to issue at approximately that price because they know they can sell them onto the RBA and even make a tiny profit from it. It's unnecessarily complicated, and I regret having to explain it to people, really. The, the end result is that the Reserve Bank of Australia owns lots of government bonds. That's what's going to happen. They already own some. They're going to own a heck of a lot more. Uh, this happened after the GFC in many other countries, not here. Uh, the size of central bank balance sheets was multiplied by more than 10 in some of these countries. They ended up owning so much. The Japanese central bank owns nearly half of all Japanese government debt. And Jap Japan's government debt is six times as high as ours. The European central bank owns about 40% of uh, the entire debt of governments in the eurozone because they bought it all up. That's what's just started happening here. But at the end of the day, the funds are typed into the government's account of the RBA and the RBA owns government bonds. And that's basically, as Bill Mitchell says, I think, in his podcast with Alan Kohler, that's one of them is your left hand pocket. The other is your right hand pocket. Repayments mm. on those bonds 
notionally go from the government to the RBA. They are then recorded as RBA profits and they're paid back to the government again. So basically yep. what is happening, to cut a long story short, the Reserve Bank is typing money into the government's bank account. Okay. Now, with the current sort of crisis that we've got and the government has made this decision to to um, pay $100, $130 billion over six months, mm. if they had um, done such spending in just normal times, if we were to go back in time two or three years ago and have announced some major spending initiative <coughs> of they'd suddenly found a social conscience and decided to create a universal basic income or something like that. Would there have been an effect of, of inflation or of the dollar being devalued or something which uh, is not a problem today because with the current crisis, uh, the world is very forgiving of whatever anybody wants to do and you can get away with more now? Is that, is that how it works? Well, it's not so much the world being forgiving. It's at the moment private sector incomes have imploded so this is not a stimulus package this is not adding to total demand instead it's replacing some of the lost demand uh, as far as inflation is concerned at the moment whole sectors of our economy have closed down so it's difficult even to calculate an inflation statistic because the way we normally do it the consumer price index a lot of items in the consumer price index simply not available at the moment or won't be very soon uh, uh, but the point is that it's you know people have talked about an economic stimulus. This is not a stimulus package. It's not part one, two, and three of a stimulus package. It's part one, two, and three of what is, given the scale of the challenge, a relatively modest support package. You're not trying to make the economy expand like a balloon that's about to burst. You're trying to stop the balloon from imploding because all the air's le- leaked out of it. So inflation. As long as the government, uh, in concert with business, uh, with relevant businesses, maintains supply chains of the basic necessities which we need to buy at the moment, we're not going to have an immediate problem with inflation. If the prices of basic necessities should rise, if it turned out the pandemic was far worse than people expect at the moment, and it was very prolonged, you could imagine a worst case scenario where there were widespread shortages. And then you'd have to think about genuinely wartime measures like rationing and price controls. But let's hope that nothing like that um, uh, will happen. Otherwise, as the economy, as society emerges from this terrible um, and historic, we're really living through the history books at the moment, event that we find ourselves in, then the measures that have been taken at the moment will be phased out. And after the Second World War, there was a benefit of all the deficit spending during the Second World War that the private sector emerged with really strong balance sheets. And we may even find under those circumstances that some people who might be receiving income that makes them feel secure at the moment, but there's nowhere to spend. Some of those people might even end up being, to, being able to pay back some of the debts. That, that, that we, there might be that kind of benefit. I don't imagine that there's going to be a serious issue um, with uh, inflation. If there is, in a way, that's a good sign because it will mean wages are on the way up, it will mean the economy is relatively buoyant and it will be something we can, which we can deal with at the time. It's not an issue at the moment. Now, to go back to your question, uh, I am not an advocate of a universal basic income. Shock, horror, everybody hate me for saying that. And, but there are reasons for that and there are reasons for why. Once the Greens 
uh, and again, let's be uh, let's be open. I'm a member of the Greens. Once the Greens a year and a bit ago, whenever it was, um, Richard Di Natale announced a UBI as a policy measure. Everybody jumped on him. And in the election, they went dead quiet about it. They forgot about it. The reason being is that uh, unless you are prepared to completely restructure the tax system and go to something like a Scandinavian tax system, which good luck if you're trying to get people to vote for that, but you can try. Um, a universal basic income is either going to be far too low a level to keep people out of poverty, in which case I'd rather not bother, or it's going to be inflationary, one of the two under normal circumstances, because if you wanted to match the single person's age pension, UBI, which I think you'd have to do if particularly people talk about getting rid of all social security payments like that, you can't get rid of them and then put someone on a lower figure. If you're going to do that, um, it involved virtually uh, involved an amount of spending which was virtually as high as all federal government spending on everything. Now, you could net out some of the costs, of course, of those payments that you were replacing and adm administration and all that. But even so, it would have involved a 50% increase in federal government expenditure, which in under normal circumstances in our economy, bearing in mind, of course, that the people who would be receiving this money, a lot of them would really need it and, and uh, I would find other ways of delivering it to them, it would lead to a big increase in, in spending. It's not an ecological measure. Uh, you'd need to open up some of your coal-fired power stations again, maybe to power the economy, if you were going to try and supply all the goods that people would want to buy, if they had all this additional money. That would have been a, that would have been a massive stimulus on steroids for the economy. So that's why I'm not in favour of it. I am in favour, uh, and I have participated a bit in Get Up's economic campaigns. I'm in favour of a guaranteed minimum income, unconditional. That's not the same thing as a universal basic income. And I'm also in favour uh, under normal times, and I hope this will happen, and it's been discussed a lot, particularly by Bernie Sanders in the US, I'm in favour as a superior automatic uh, economic stabiliser to anything we've ever had in the past of a federal job guarantee. So that if you lose your job or if you don't have enough hours at work, then sure, there is a guaranteed minimum income. We're not going to let you starve, but there is a much higher payment than that you can take advantage of. If you take a job in a program which is locally administered but federally funded by the currency issuer uh, working either in environmental repair and restoration or social care in one way or another we're not talking about nursing here but things like support to keep elderly to allow elderly or vulnerable people to be independent at home uh, to work within the not-for-profit sector we've got a whole variety of ideas that we're not short of jobs that people would do. Um, and in South Australia, we've been talking to local councils. Uh, I did a forum which had uh, the mayor and some councillors from Mitcham Council in South Australia before Christmas uh, talking about this. So local authorities are not short of ideas. 
and the local community is not short of ideas. There's a lot that we could be doing usefully in Australia. We're not running out and we aren't going to run out of things that we can do for each other if the funding is available. The idea behind a federal job guarantee is that when the economy takes a downturn, uh, if people lose their jobs, they have the option, not the obligation, not going to lose other entitlements, but they have the option if they want to turn up at the local job guarantee office and to participate in one of a number of scalable but socially useful uh, activities for, for which they'll get paid and they get the normal working conditions. And you can stay in the federal job guarantee permanently, if you like. In the New Deal in the US in the 1930s, they paid people to do arts, drama, they paid people to, do, to write, to do scientific research. But you could also be being paid to plant trees or pull up weeds or work on uh, on small uh, uh, infrastructural projects, yes, but things like paths through uh, national parks, not the sorts of things that would normally be done in the private sector or the conventional public sector. Um, and, and so automatically spending on the job guarantee will increase during an economic downturn without any delay and without politicians or public servants having to forecast anything or react to anything or to take any decisions because this program would be budgeted per participant. It wouldn't be budgeted in terms of its total size. So it would automatically react to an economic downturn. And then the idea is that during the upturn, uh, people, many of them would transition back out of the job guarantee again into better paid jobs in the private sector, or maybe even in the conventional public sector. So uh, when necessary, spending on the job guarantee expands to cushion a downturn but then also when you want the fiscal deficit to be smaller and perhaps rarely, exceptionally, even to run a fiscal surplus, spending on the job guarantee would contract during an upturn. That's how the federal job guarantee would work. And I would be pitching that at a package of a, if you're working full time in the job guarantee, um, uh, something like $40,000 a year, uh, where, while I would be guaranteeing a minimum income which would be at least a little more than the uh, current, what was New Start payment. But the difference between it and New Start would be there'd be no mutual obligations on you. It would just be a payment that you were getting, if you like, because you happen to be a citizen in Australia. Mm. That's how mm. it would work. But I wouldn't be paying, making payments to Gina Reinhart and then taxing some of them back. That's what a universal basic income is. I would not be doing that. I, I don't yeah. think it works. Speaking of Gina Reinhart, um, have you looked at? Uh, have you got? Well, I'm sure you do have uh, an opinion on a wealth tax, a sort of an Elizabeth Warren style wealth tax in Australia. Got any thoughts on that? A wealth tax does nothing to pay for anything. That's the first thing to say, and it's not even uh, effective in terms of inflation control, because the people you're taking those dollars off, we're not going to spend them anyway. Why I am in favour of taxing the rich is because they're too rich. So there, is a, there was a, an article written by somebody called Beardsley Rummel, R-U-M-L, in the 1940s. I think it was published in 19, January 1946, but it can be found online. The name of the article, if my memory serves me correctly, is Taxes for Revenue Are Obsolete. And it explains, you know, I, t I set you down the years, Central bankers and leading economists know the truth. 
It explains, like I explained, that taxes don't pay for anything at the federal level. Government spends and they tax some of it back. Uh, well, that was the first, uh, that was the point he was making. And so he was then saying, OK, taxes don't pay for federal spending. So what are they for? And the first point he made was that with taxes, t- taxes are there to defend the value of the dollar and to ensure that there's not too much spending going on in inflation. So you have taxes to reduce the ability of the private sector to spend, to create room within the productive capacity of the economy for the government to spend on public goods and all the other things it needs to spend on without creating inflation. That's the first point. But the second point he made, taxes are there to redistribute wealth. So why have a wealth tax on Gina Reinhart? Because she's too wealthy. Personally. If there was an easy way of doing this, given that we have a minimum wage, I would have a maximum level of remuneration. Um, I would pre-distribute rather than redistribute through the tax system, given the choice. I would have workers on company boards of directors. So I would have employees in general having more influence over the packages that uh, chief executives get from companies. I would be uh, looking very carefully at options and other benefits that chief executives get. And uh, in an ideal world, there would be a maximum level of remuneration. And I'm also happy for there to be a maximum level of wealth. Um, You could even let people uh, notionally pay themselves above that, but have a list of charities to which any additional sum has to be donated. So effectively, they have a 100% tax rate over a certain level. And I'm not opposed to a wealth tax in itself. I certainly think there should be an inheritance tax, as there is in lots of other countries, as there is in the Mm. UK. Mm. Um, But people have to bear in mind we are taxing people like Gina Reinhart heavily because we believe they're too wealthy, they've got too great a demand over real resources, and especially they have too much political influence. And that's why we're taxing them. Does it pay? For healthcare, does it pay for Medicare? Does it pay for schools? Does it pay for public services? No, it does absolutely nothing at all to do that. I'm sorry if that's shocking for people, but the way our monetary system works at the federal level, taxes fund nothing. That's not how the system works. And if you are using taxes to limit inflationary pressures, then if you wanted to be a sort of pro rich person, a, 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 a person doing arguments, you'd say actually taxing the rich doesn't doesn't really help there either because they're not going to spend the dollars anyway. It's such an interesting way of looking at it that we are so indoctrinated of of thinking of money in and out and balancing and and the way you're describing it is such a, a contrast to uh, and just another dimension of thinking about it that it's just hard to get your head around it as a matter of ordinary thinking. So, well, I'll take, so I'll take you back to Paul Samuelson at the beginning, that mm. Nobel Prize winning economist. Uh, mm. The narrative that we're all used to is an old-fashioned religion. His words, not mine. It's there yes. to scare people. Yeah. Now, on a completely different topic, kind of, mm. but just before we finish up, uh, the US dollar, it – is it true that the US has been getting a bit of a free ride and an advantage from being the world's sort of default currency? And could this sort of coronavirus sort of crisis um, accelerate 
the demise of the US dollar where it's no longer the world's currency do you do you have any thoughts on the US dollar at all what what tell tell me what i need to know about the US dollar as far as the US dollar is concerned um i suppose there is one way in which things are unfair in that the global financial crisis started in the US and when the global financial crisis happens everybody wants to buy US dollars and the same thing to an extent is true now the Australian dollar is seen as a relatively high-risk currency, partly because we're a commodity currency. And so when the world is a very uncertain place, there tends to be downward pressure on the Australian dollar. But people can relax. Our economy is flexible and enough so that actually we hardly notice it. The, the dollar, the Australian dollar, has been sliding for a while. And you would imagine that means imports are a lot more expensive and so we're worried about inflation. No, the RBA before this crisis was missing its inflation target on the downside, on the low side, not on the upside. In a, in a, in a diversified economy like Australia, diversified modern economy, you can have quite big fluctuations in exchange rates with very little impact on inflation, almost no discernible impact at all. Um, as far as the US is concerned, it is still the case uh, notwithstanding Donald Trump being president, it's still the case that the normal reaction of the world when everybody's panicking is to want to buy the safest asset they can buy. And the safest asset that you can buy in a world where so many things are priced in US dollars is US government debt. So everybody wants to buy US treasuries and to buy US treasuries You've got to buy U.S. dollars. So that's what's, ha what's happened. Now, is the U.S. dollar going to lose its status? Perhaps one day, but we should bear in mind that Britain stopped being the world's largest economy um, well before 1850. The pound was the completely dominant global currency in 1850, 1860, 1870, 1880, 1890, 1900, 1910. The dollar supplanted the pound, and even then only partially, initially, um, in the 1940s. So what's going to replace the US dollar? Uh, there might be a bipolar system at some point in the future, but at the moment China is far too authoritarian and there are far too many controls on China's financial system and the yuan is not really a, uh, a freely tradable currency. So the Chinese currency isn't, a position, isn't in a position to be. And the eurozone is on the brink of collapse again, because every time there's a crisis, the eurozone's on the brink of collapse. So there isn't anything else for people to hold. So is the US dollar going to lose its position? No. Does it put the US in a special position? Well, I suppose, in a sense, because the rest of the world um, wants to save in US dollars over time. So the US is able to, uh, Donald Trump talks about this as though it's a disadvantage, but to me it's an advantage to run persistent trade deficits forever. 
basically they're getting goods that people have worked hard to produce and they're giving those people bits of paper mm. or not even bits of so, paper, items. So what you... Or, or, uh, 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 they're giving them a bank statement. But that's true of us too because we've run mm. trade deficits or at least current account deficits um, until last year, every year since 1974. And um, there isn't a significant difference between the, the fiscal space, the budgetary space our government has and that had by uh, the US government and to different degrees also governments in places like Japan and the UK and even New Zealand. And the important thing is that all those countries share the characteristics of what people like me call monetary sovereignty. They issue their own currencies, which they collect taxes in, unlike Greece or even Germany. They have floating exchange rates, unlike a lot of middle and low-income countries. So they're not guaranteeing to convert their currency uh, into any commodity or any foreign currency, anything that they could run out of at a fixed rate. And they have no significant foreign currency debt, at least the government doesn't. So all of those governments are in the same position as our federal government, which is that they have no purely financial constraint at all. They cannot run out of their own currency. They cannot run out of anything. The constraints on government spending are the real productive capacity of the economy, the people, the skills, the capital equipment, the technology, the infrastructure, the institutional capacity, and the natural resources. That's what constrains government spending in those countries. Um, a, a, a financial constraint, as far as those countries are concerned, doesn't exist. And a government debt crisis, as far as those countries uh, is concerned, is impossible. So was it a mistake for countries to join the euro yes. and to lose that, yes. that sovereignty? And we were warning about it when it happened. Um, there is a, a, a famous economist called Wynne Godley, who was the head of uh, the Department of Applied Economics at Cambridge University, was a British government advisor for a while, uh, uh, ended up um, working uh, in New York, somewhere called the Levy Institute, which would have been set up by another famous economist called Hyman Minsky. Uh, Wynne Godley is, if not one of the founders of modern monetary theory, because he was from a previous generation, is a favourite uncle of modern monetary theory. And when the treaty which led to the euro being established was set up, was first agreed to in 1992, he published a short article in the London Review of Books, which is freely available online. If people wanted to Google it, it was called Maastricht and all that because it was the Maastricht Treaty. And in that article and in a variety of more of, of sophisticated academic papers down the years written by him and others, he not only explained why joining a single currency with no federal government able to spend money into existence and able to allocate resources from one part to another. He not only explained that it was a mistake, he also explained why it would fail. So people were very interested in Wynne's work when the GFC struck. Sadly, uh, Wynne died in 2010. He's not with us any longer. But I, I recommend, if you want to see a piece of uh, uh, um, uh, prophecy, fortune telling. Just read Maastricht and all that, London Review of Books, October 1992. It's up there on the on the internet. Um, 
And it wasn't just him. There was Charles Goodhart, who is at the LSE and and uh, what used to be at the Bank of England. And again, from that previous generation, I wouldn't call him a modern monetary theory economist, but he's been a colleague of, as a friend of many MMT economists. He was writing the same thing in the in the 1990s. So they were warned. And the problem was they set up this system where the there was no government behind the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank was not supposed to backstop government spending. And they went even further than that. They set up this rule where governments were not supposed to run a deficit bigger than 3% of GDP. Um, what happened then, of course, there was the financial crisis. It became essential for some of these governments, particularly <coughs> those which had gone through property market crashes and banking crises, to run government deficits far in excess of 3% of GDP. The financial markets realized that some governments, not in the Eurozone, despite the fact they had a lot of debt, were freely able to do this because they were monetary sovereigns. So there was no question of the UK government ever facing a, 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 crisis, a fiscal crisis, a, a debt crisis, as a result of bailing out and basically nationalising its banking system, which they did temporarily in the UK. They could do that freely because they had the Bank of England behind them. Um, but similar things happening in Spain and Ireland um, would have led to huge defaults and would have led to the collapse of the euro were it not the case that uh, to an extent in 2010 and then properly in 2012, the European Central Bank broke its own rules and started to backstop those governments. What was indefensible as far as the ECP is concerned and what is the, the shenanigans and the dishonesty and uh, disgraceful behaviour of many leading uh, politicians and economists in, in within <coughs> the Eurozone. It's described in a book called Adults in the Room by Yanis Varoufakis, who was the Greek finance minister, where they basically mm -hmm. decided to make a, a, a to, to make a, a, a an example of Greece and just to hang Greece out to dry. And mm -hmm. um, I really recommend that book. It came out last year. Yanis recently was touring Australia. He was here in Adelaide. At the Writers' Week, um, I get I got to listen to him speak at uh, the SACOS co conference um, here. That tells you a lot about how the eurozone worked. But yes, the euro, as it was originally devised, was a mistake. There are ways of reforming the eurozone to make it work better. Um, at the moment, they are relaxing their rules somewhat in order to. <coughs> <coughs> allow <coughs> governments of places like Italy and Spain to continue to operate, what will happen in the medium term? Um, I don't know. The ideal thing to happen from an economic point of view would be federalism, to have a strong federal government with a central, uh, with a central budget. But uh, the way that national identities work in Europe it doesn't seem that any such body could have uh, democratic legitimacy. So it doesn't seem like that's very likely. What's my recommendation? I don't think my recommendation will happen, and it wouldn't be Yanis's recommendation. My recommendation is a planned uh, unravelling of the Eurozone and a return to national currencies. 
Yes, I've read Giannis's book and it seemed to me that he still had hope that the system could be modified to be made to work. Um, he sort of called their bluff, but his preference was to stay in the system and make it work. But, but he was prepared uh, to leave and he had planned yes, he to was. leave. And James Galbraith uh, is a modern monetary theory economist who, if you read his book, you would have seen that he had James Galbraith with him in Athens working on a backstop plan, which was to basically be in a position where you could relaunch the drachma. That wasn't his first choice, but you also know from reading his book that although, you know, unscrambling the omelette is is difficult, but Yanis was not in favour of joining the euro in the first place. Backing out of the euro is something where there is room for disagreement. Yanis and Bill Mitchell are, are good friends. Bill Mitchell is our Australian modern monetary theory economist who wrote a book called Eurozone Dystopia. He is on the side of saying, no, it's better just to go through the adjustment costs and move out of the system. Rapidly, you'll be better off out of this system. <coughs> Yanis is of the view that you can reform the system. The best approach to reforming the system if this was possible, <coughs> would be, you know, like in Australia, we've had we've got a Commonwealth government. In the US, they have a federal government. They have states. Um, having a federal government in Europe, uh, there are other things that you can do. Uh, another thing you could do is you could say, let's get rid of that 3% limit. Let's have a 10% of GDP limit because that's where you need to go to when there's a crisis. Mm. And let's have the European Central Bank unconditionally backstopping governments so that it is acting mm. as a as a central bank for those governments. That creates some of its own problems too, because in 5,000 years of monetary history, and this is not something new, we've had money and we've effectively even had central banking for 5,000 years at least. Um, there has never been a monetary experiment like the Eurozone, and there mm. are probably good reasons for that. So just to finish off, um, we've, we're, covering, we're, we're covering the planet here, but in terms of Brexit, um, did you have a strong opinion about how drastic the Brexit, would, the effect would be on the UK? And does, does the crisis at the moment change that in any way? Does it um, just, just some, some Brexit elevator pitch thoughts, Stephen? I didn't think that there would be a massive impact in the long run. There were bound to be some transitional costs, but they're irrelevant now really because this is a, this is a crisis. It's massively bigger than Brexit. Uh, mm. So there was, there was nonsense on both sides really um, in the Brexit debate, but uh, the forecasts about economic collapse in the UK um, as a consequence of going to World Trade Organization rules for <coughs> trading with Europe were, in my view, nonsensical. Um, that's not yeah. to say that there were not going to be and will not be some adjustment costs because the details have not been worked out yet. Uh, uh, it, on the other hand, I was ambivalent about Brexit because Britain wasn't in the euro anyway. Yes. Um, the issue an issue that uh, people who were very keen from the left on Brexit um, were concerned about <coughs> was that some of the policies that Jeremy Corbyn was putting forward and some of the policies which um, any progressive government in the future might want to put forward in the UK or in other European countries, 
some of the things that were happening now, actually, because there's no choice, are technically probably against European law. For example, right. Britain at the moment is renationalizing the railways because all the companies are crashing. Now, there was a uh, possibility that such measures of that would be against European competition legislation, so could be blocked. Um, and on that basis, that you could put an argument together and say, well, if we had a progressive government in Britain, we're probably better off out of the euro uh, of the European Union because the European Union has been set up fundamentally as a neoliberal institution with a bias towards privatisation and with practically uh, practically forbidding state ownership where state ownership didn't exist before and putting all sorts of other restrictions on the freedom of, uh, of national governments to act in ways that they might want to act, perhaps to protect people or protect the environment. So there is a lexic case. It's not all about right-wing xenophobes. And there are people on the left, including in the Labour Party, who were in favour of leaving the European Union and indeed going back a generation or two ago when it was called the European Community. Famous left-wing people like Tony Benn were always in favour of leaving and never in favour of joining in the first place, the way that it's set up. Mm. Uh, the issue then is, <coughs> are you Yanis Varoufakis? Do you want to try and reform it from within? Or do you think, no, that's just impossible? We're better off outside. I don't have a clear answer to that, so I'm ambivalent. Mm. Yeah. Stephen, um, you're starting to enter coughing fits, which indicates you need to grab some medicine or a, a glass of water or whatever. And, and we've gone on, and this has been great. Um, I'd really like to do this again at another time and explore this because people don't talk about economics enough and it's tricky. And the way you're describing it, a new way of well, – not a new way, but a, a completely different way of thinking about um, money and how it's generated, um, it's – it's part of what we need to do to get our heads around some important questions over the next few years. So uh, thank you very much for coming on to my humble no podcast. And I hope, I hope we can do it again down the track. Uh, absolutely. Let me know when it goes up somewhere and I'll share it around. Terrific. Okay. Thanks, Stephen. All right. I'll send you some Thanks links when it's done and okay. um, enjoy the rest of your day and week and I uh, hope to be in touch. Okay. Thanks. Well, dear listener, there we go. Let me just get organised while I um, work out what's happening. Scott couldn't make the um, Scott couldn't make our panel uh, this evening, so um, it looks like I've got some people in the waiting room. And let me just get them on and see if this all works. Um, Craig, are you there? Yes. How are you going, Craig? Good, how are you going? I'm going well. Did you listen to all of that with the our economist, Stephen Hale? I only heard the last bit, sorry. Okay, no worries. So is this Craig Deep Throat or is this a different Craig? Uh, Craig, no, Craig S. Oh, Craig S. Good on you, Craig. So yeah. um, Craig S, anything on your mind that you want to get off your chest before I run through my agenda of stuff? How, what are your thoughts on the world? Oh, I... I just find it interesting how uh, how we're going to have all this debt. Um, 
I read an interesting article today, and I think it was actually in The Australian, how uh, how the younger people, are, as you constantly say, are, are doing really well uh, at the moment, you know, with the older generation getting all the subsidies and uh, the younger generation are going to be piled on with their, all this debt. Who's actually going to be paying for it? Yeah, well, if you'd listened to the early part of, of that conversation with uh, Stephen Hill, basically he was saying that because we have uh, sovereignty uh, over our currency, um, that we we issue currency ourselves and that uh, it's a different way of thinking about currency. It's not about spending it and then having to repay it because it's it's something that we can generate at any time and basically in a situation at the moment where cash is in short supply uh, what the government is effectively doing is injecting cash into the system and um, it's it's not money that has to be repaid you'll have to listen to the whole podcast to sort I'll of get yeah. the whole gist of it but essentially he's making the point that that money is something that governments create and they can create it at any time and it's not something, in terms of repaying a a debt in Australian dollars, we can create Australian dollars whenever we want to. So the reason why we don't just, he didn't like the word print, but uh, issue massive amounts of currency is that if you flood the the economy with excess money, then you get inflationary problems. So at the moment, inflation's the least of our worries. So we can flood the market with money that because it's basically parched earth that needs money in it. And the risk of creating an inflationary scenario is quite low. Um, we can deal with that later. So so yeah, it's not about money that we are now having to repay. It's it's more thinking of money as as a grease in the system that that has to be put in, and um, it's really how squeaky is the system at any one time? Do you need to add more grease, or or is it is it flooded with grease and you better hold back for a bit? And, and you're not really looking at buying and selling the grease. It's it's a it's a strange concept. So um, it's a strange concept, and and that's not what most mainstream it. Stream economists talk about though, is it? I mean, they, we're always talking about uh, you know balancing the books and having to pay back our debts because there's such a high focus on it. I mean, obviously this guy's coming up from a completely different angle, but I wonder whether he's going to get much support. So, uh, modern monetary theory and is a school of economics, and uh, so as he mentioned, there was a podcast with Alan Kohler did with another. Uh, economist Australian of that school so I'll have links in the show notes I haven't listened to it yet um, but um, basically what these guys are saying is that traditional economic theory is wrong and is a con job it's really what he was saying in the beginning that that uh, and that economists have known this for a long time and uh and and really, I guess you've got a schism in the in the economic theory world, and um, and this is this is one that's that's coming out. And uh, I mean, currency and money is such a nebulous, interesting thing. It's 
if you ever get the chance, uh, there's a podcast done by This American Life on money, and they examined uh, three different scenarios. I've mentioned this in the past once before. One was about the the Yap uh, Islander community in the Pacific who use these large stones, and yes. the other one was about um, a Latin American country where they had hyperinflation, and the other story was about... Um, the injection of uh, quantitative easing by the federal government uh, during the financial crisis. And they did them in that order. And at the beginning, when you listen to the story about the Yap people with their with their stone um, sort of circles as their currency, you think, what a, what a silly bunch of savages, they don't know anything. And at the end of it, you start to look at their system and you think, actually, it probably makes more sense than the one that we're, we're working with now. Um, uh the, the other thing that they made, in the, the sort of point they made in that podcast was about um, was about faith in a currency. So in the Latin American hyperinflation case, the, the, they the the way of solving it was creating a currency that that had faith, and they used a trick in order to to get faith. So. Um, so it's it's part dark magic, it seems almost. I, I agree. It's uh, and and um, it's a different way of of looking at currency. So so yeah. So when it comes to you know, are we indebting our future generations, and are they going to have to pay this back? Uh, the answer from Stephen would be no. That's perfectly fine. Don't worry. So. Right. Yeah. Well, I'll have to go back and listen to the full one. Yeah. But uh, from yeah, from what I'm reading, obviously that's that I have heard of that theory before, but it's still not quite uh, mainstream, or it's still not really talked about much in the mainstream press. Yeah. Well, as I said, there's just been a recent um, podcast with Anna Kohler with somebody doing that, so he's pretty mainstream. So okay. Yeah. Um, so that's that. Joining us as well with a bit of luck, I think, is Murray. Are you there, Murray? I think so, Trev. How are you? Yeah, really good, Murray. So, um, thoughts, Murray, on on what's just happened with with that? Or, or you know, you've come to join us. What if, what's what's on the, what's on your mind, Murray? Any topics open open for business? Oh, I was just going to say that uh, I think that episode, yeah, you, everyone's going to need to listen to it at least three times to to take in everything that he's saying. Like, there's some pretty broad concepts there um, that. Uh, yeah, really, really need to be analysed, and a couple, a couple. I think yeah, there's no way that the people in power are going to implement those. They've they've got them in they've got them themselves in power in power by by playing the rich people's game, and the rich people play that game in order to stay in power. They'll keep those people in power. So, you know, so, some of those things aren't aren't some of the things he suggested aren't going to come come about. Um, just regarding the 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 national debt. I've, I posted a link in the uh, um, in the Facebook comments of a NPR actually did a, a really good episode on explaining the the US two trillion dollar injection, mm-hmm. how that works, and then just um, you know what the implications on the economy are, how they what what two trillion dollars actually looks like, and really spoiler alert, it's just the just a line on the ledgers, mm-hmm. and how they then get the two trillion dollars to then hand out to people and what that what that means, um, and then how do they? What happens to the two trillion dollars in the in the long run? How they how do, how's that? Um, what does that do to the, the balance of the of the country? 
Yep. So were they describing it as a debt then that would have to be repaid and it was a burden on a future generation? Yes, that, that's, that ends up, that, that is the end point for, for that $2 trillion debt that, that they've got. The, the way that it's, that basically that it invites people to, um, to buy, uh, to get the cash from, get cash printed from the, the Fed and then get the, uh, obviously that $2 trillion debt has to come from, yeah, so it gets, gets added, added to the general ledger. Yep. Yep. Hey, Adele, if you're there, uh, just um, you've got something on in the background, I think, Adele. So if he's there, somebody else has joined us in the um, in the room. No, he's left now. So sorry. Um, well, people can listen to, like I've... I had the interview with Stephen. I edited it, so I listened to it, and I've just listened to it a third time. And there's still bits that are just so <laughs> counterintuitive to how my mind's been indoctrinated that I still um, uh, have to get my head around a different way of thinking. So, yeah, at least three listens will be required. And uh, and then compare it with uh, the link you've got to the NPR episode and, and people can make up their mind as to as to what they think. And maybe if you um, have got a question specifically, um, put it in the uh, in the comments now because at some stage I'm sure uh, Stephen can go through the comments. We can do a future episode and he can address them. So if you've got a question about uh, what he said and how it works, then maybe leave a detailed uh, comment. Or um, on the website we've got a speak pipe um, voicemail system so you could just go onto that and leave a voicemail and uh and do it that way so um so yeah so that's your option there um so anything else um any more comments about uh about what Stephen had to say or would you guys like to talk more generally about uh the coronavirus crisis you've got any interesting feelings or insights or, or do you want me just to ramble on with my agenda and you can chip in when you feel like it? Um, what do you think? Yeah. Uh, what's your agenda, Trev? Okay. Well, um, uh, one of the, well, what I'll first of all say is that um, uh, like I agree with the, with the package. It's not often that I agree with Scott Morrison as regular listeners would know, but I think really, if uh, if I was in charge, I would have done something similar. I reckon it's probably um, ticks a lot of boxes. There might be some bits on the edges. Uh, I'm not sure what happens with people who aren't Australian citizens or uh, people like that. But to me, it seems like a good move. So, uh, did Craig or um, Murray disagree with that? Job, I think the job keeper is a good a good idea to try and keep people in touch with their work, and obviously we don't want huge unemployment. Mm-hmm. Um, that first round, I think, of $750 payments are going out soon. I see the age pensioners are getting that as well. I'm not sure why they're getting that when they're really on a fixed income and their income's not dropping. Um, it's really just the, uh, the people that are losing their income or becoming unemployed would be the main people. But apart from that, I think it's it's quite good. Mm. So one- I'm not really sure about the, uh, the, the mechanism that he's using to to assist the businesses, whether there's, I don't think in the package that he's offering that there's a a check, like, like whether it's um, whether there are checks to make sure that people are maintaining business. I think it's 
still based on um, the last. You only have to. It's based off of the last BAS statement. Is that is that correct? Um, yeah, they'll look at the BAS statements, and there will be lump sum payments given to businesses, um, minimum of ten thousand um, each quarter. So, yeah, but that- I don't think that they. I think they give like so they'll pay the next three months regardless of whether they keep the staff. Correct. So they will. So, that- so if you have ten people in staff and you get um, get that ten percent extra payment or whatever it is per. Like they, they're, they're taking off the uh, payroll tax or something, so some portion of the tax that they would normally pay. So if you have 10, 10 staff, you are, you only get, uh, I think I thought the maths worked out, but it was like you get like for 10 staff being paid $1,000, let's say, for, for the month or for the, for the week, you get $180. <laughs> Essentially, it was a 15% figure. So if your wage bill uh, was a thousand dollars, then you'd get one hundred and fifty dollars. And initially, the idea was, we want you to take that money and and hopefully keep employing people. And of course, uh, when anybody looked at that, they said, well, of course, nobody just because of a fifteen percent subsidy is going to keep employing people. So, yeah. as I understand it, that money will still go to businesses, and um, the problem for businesses will be rent and interest. And at this stage. All he said is that he's hoping and expecting that the banks and the landlords will help will help out, and I'm convinced he'll need to pass legislation because they're not voluntarily going to. So, uh, in an iron fist government, um, you'd basically have to say to landlords if you've got a tenant who's lost a job or you've got a shop that has had to close down you're not allowed to charge interest and then the landlord can turn around to its bank and say, well, I'm not getting interest from this person and therefore I don't have to pay you interest. And then the buck stops then with the banks and interest rates are so low that uh, that they can just cop a six-month freeze on interest rates without a lot of pain and it's, you know, a bit of a penance for all the hard times they gave us, you know, 12 years ago. And um, at the moment they're talking about um, rent, uh, a sort of interest, repo- you know, mortgage repayment holidays. But what they're saying is, what the banks are offering is, oh, over the next six months if, you've, uh, if you're struggling, you don't have to pay your instalment. But they're just adding that, that money onto the... Uh, the loan, so they're still charging the interest. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just um, it's just being capitalised and added to the loan. So so that's the problem with whatever I've seen from banks so far is that they're saying, um, oh, you know, we'll, we'll give you a holiday, but it's not really a holiday. It's just a deferred. You know, you won't have to pay for six months, but it just gets added to your loan. So that's going to cripple a lot of businesses. And uh, really, I think. We're in a situation where the government has said to to labour, working people, you're banned from working. You're banned from earning an income uh, with your labour effort. It's entitled then to say to capital, you're banned from earning income from your capital because we've got other people banned from earning income with their labour. And as part of the community, you can you can take uh, some of that pain as well. So... Uh, 
So there was that, it would be my opinion. And, and the idea of allowing people to access their super is incredibly dangerous. And, um, you know, I don't think they should. I think that that, that really is t- uh, kicking a can down the road and, and, and causing a problem for people in their retirement. So I think we should deal with the crisis we've got and, and not let people drain their superannuation and leave them with nothing there, which is which was what happened to a lot of young people. So, there's a reason yeah. it was made compulsory, right? Is because people were at the end relying on government subsidies in, in their old age to to look after them. Yes, I mean, that's that's what it's there for. Yes, yeah, and it's and it's universal. And as soon as you start saying, "Oh, we'll make an exception this time," or "We'll make an exception next time," it kind of opens up uh, down the track for any other crisis that might come up. Yeah, indeed. So. Um, you know, they don't say to companies, oh, you must have an ironclad reserve account uh, put off to the side worth 10% of your, uh, of your, annu- of your income um, that we're going to make you um, access during um, a hard time, crisis time. So, uh, so, you know, they're not doing that. So I think it's dangerous um, to... To allow people access to their superannuation, so well, yeah. without the, uh, the getting back into the debate about whether the government's got to pay the money back or not, I mm. think the, the government's just thinking, well, we'll get people to use their own money, so we don't have to get into any more debt. Uh, yep, I'll let that one slide through until you've gone back through the whole yeah. the idea of debt. Yeah. yeah. So, what about a lockdown? Um, what What are your guys' feelings on should we be in a lockdown um, or not? Well, you don't well, have to. Was, yeah. I was going to say, if it was if it was guaranteed to work, I think we should do it because this is just going to drag on and on and on. I think if it was the high probability of of working for uh, whether it's six to eight weeks, then I, I think it really should be seriously looked at. Mathematically, we should be right. Um, so uh, there's a um, a pod- podcast called Number File by a South Australian guy based in um, uh, it's a sorry YouTube channel Number File. And he's basically speaking to a mathematician about how well, uh, you know, just using some basic formulas, what the infection rate and people who's, um, who are no longer infectious and, and that kind of thing. And the sooner you can clamp down on the infection rate, the better the, better the tail end is. So if, if we had actually clamped down, it's great in hindsight, two weeks, three weeks ago, we would have you really flatten the curve, you stop people, stop the transmission rate. So essentially, yes, you can, you still hurt for a, for a bit, but it's all about putting the strain on the resources. Mm. Hey, guys, just, um, it looks like the video's turned off and I don't know if that's me or you. Did you want your video on or do you don't care? Because it might be me who's blocking it. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not running video. Okay, all right. I'll just leave it as it is. Um, I saw... I saw a tweet um, by this guy, Joseph Walker, and uh, what he was saying that the incubation period is up to 14 days, and if you've got all citizens in lockdown, you need 14 days to identify and isolate the people who were infected just before the lockdown began. Uh, And in a lockdown, the only other people they can infect are their cohabitants, their family. So if an infected person spreads coronavirus to their spouse on the 14th day of the lockdown, 
you need to allow another 14 days to ensure you can identify the second generation of infections. Hence, four weeks are needed in total. But at that point then, you can be very confident that you know um, where all your cases are if you're then testing um, those people with symptoms. So that's a good reason to me, but that sort of made sense. Yeah, yep, I think it makes sense. Yeah, I think yep. it makes sense. If it's got a high chance of working, I think we should do it because otherwise this kind of partial lockdown is just going to keep going on and on with no end in sight. Yeah. Wasn't there a uh, – was it New York Times or Wall Street, uh, Washington Post uh, series of animated GIFs demonstrating how soon, you know, the effectiveness of, of lockdown? And basically if you don't have – if you have 70% of the population still – doing what they want, you may as well have nothing. The, the, the more you can lock down uh, people's interactions, the, the better the, the, uh, the response is, the, the slower that people might get. Yeah, it, it, it seems pretty obvious. Um, one of the things is uh, this, one of the big mistakes they've made in this government is the crazy um, exceptions and variations to the social distancing rules which really hasn't inspired confidence in this. It started way back in the beginning when Scott Morrison said, you know, we're going to uh, stop all sporting events or gatherings of more than 500 people. Um, but after this weekend, once I've had a chance to watch my boys on the footy field, and, and that sort of uh, inconsistency in the social distancing is um, has had a real effect with people. You can't blame people to, for some extent for not taking it seriously when there's such a mixed message. And I've got a little bit here from uh, Sammy Jay, a little clip that I'll just play, which demonstrates um, the sort of mixed messages and the craziness of it. So here we go. First of all, can I start by saying people need to treat this seriously, okay? I can't be any clearer about this. You must stay inside unless you are a child going to school or you need a haircut. The haircuts are fine, but only for half an hour. Now, the club doctor has been very specific that the virus kicks in at the 31st minute. Okay, this fight is going to be ugly, but it doesn't mean we have to be. So if we're going to cop it, I want us to be the best groomed nation in the ICU. Right, weddings. Weddings are restricted to five people. I'm sorry about that. This will be painful for some, but those are the rules. If you want to have more than five people, you could perhaps tell the priest it's a funeral, in which case we'll allow 10 people, not including the corpse. Or you could hold your wedding at the hairdresser, in which case, as you know, invite as many people as you want, but only for half an hour, as I've previously stated. I cannot be clearer about this. There we go. That sums it up. <laughs> um, so uh, now, are you guys aware of of the National COVID Coordination Commission, the NCCC. No, I'm not. Right, okay. So uh, let me play you a little clip again of what Scott Morrison uh, has done here. By today I'm announcing the establishment of a National COVID-19 Coordination Commission. That commission's job, put simply, is to solve problems. Problems that require the private sector working together with the private sector. CEOs to talk to CEOs and to be engaged with by CEOs to ensure we can get these problems sorted, whether it's ensuring we get food to supermarkets 
and we ensure the supply lines remain open there and the trucks can roll out when they need to roll out and we have enough of them to do that job at all the right times, these are the many challenges that we need to face. Now, Nev Power uh, was the former uh, head of the Fortescue Minerals Group. He has a, a great experience in doing just this task. If you're working in the mining sector, you need to know how to solve problems and big ones. Uh, there are only big issues in the mineral sector. They will come to us and say, Prime Minister, we need to do this. We need you to authorise this. We recommend that you take this action to get these problems sorted. And so I want to give Australians confidence that we've got the best people in this country working to solve the problems and the challenges that are going to confront us. So we've turned off Parliament and we've just got a bunch of CEOs and put them in charge with a whole lot of public servants and other groups having to report to them. Right. It's, and Parliament's not sitting for, or oh, they're going to have one special sit, sitting, but they're not sitting again until August. Yeah. So I don't remember uh, voting for um, Neville Power, Greg Combay, Jane Halton, Paul Little, Catherine Tanner, David Thody. Um, like, the I, this is what we have a public service for. This is, this is what we have a government for, to to coordinate these things. But these guys have got their own little committee now with um, a bunch of of government entities having to report to them. And these guys get the inside running to tell the government what it thinks should what they think should be done. So I've got here a quote from Damon Blake on the Humanist Facebook page. He says can we take a moment to appreciate the fact that the Morrison government has forced the suspension of Parliament through till August and replaced it with a hand-picked group of CEOs who have been given a blank cheque on behalf of the taxpayer? Um, let me see. The budget has been delayed through October and supply has been preemptively guaranteed by Labor. These guys have got direct access to the levers of power across all arms of government, which is Morrison's words, and to whom, quote, the military is at their disposal, end quote. Again, Morrison's words. And the Federal Police, Border Force and ASIO will be reporting via the Department of Home Affairs, who have been handed a mandate to restructure the economy. Just, and, and who's the head? A mining CEO. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. It's hard to imagine this group making recommendations about more tax on miners or anything that might be against the interests of miners. So, you know, people are asking, are these guys getting paid? Well, the influence that they'll have uh, be worth more than a salary that they might get. Um, so who's, who's David Taylor? So he's the guy in charge of this new group. And um, I'll read here from – actually, sorry – David Taylor wrote an article in the AIM network, and uh, so who is Neville Power? Who's the uh, who's basically he was the CEO of Fortescue Metals Group, and as as David Taylor says, nothing shrieks medical expertise and nuanced public relations as much as Neb's career digging rocks out of the ground. <laughs> what? Just because you've been a CEO of a company doesn't make you um, some expert in coordinating the, the civil side to work with with Parliament. Um, it's just one of his. This is just Scott Morrison's mates who've been plucked yeah. for these positions. Um, 
So, you know, um, and Morrison has got a lot of mining mates, so that's not unusual. The other one in there just is... Know that, uh, just see Greg Combe's on there, though. Yes. You always have a token lefty. Even the Australian has a token lefty in um, Philip Adams. Like, you just throw one in there so you can say, when they say, oh, these are all right-wing characters, they go, oh, we've got Greg Combe. Like, you just put one in there because then you've right. got an easy answer, haven't you? Yeah. The fact that the other five or six are not uh, doesn't matter. You can say, oh, I've got Greg Combe in there. So yeah. um, who's David Thode? Um, he was a, a Telstra CEO. And uh, according to um, to this article, um, he was involved with buying video streaming company Uyala for over $500 million in 2014 and writing it down to nothing in 2018. So... <laughs> Greg Combe, Jane Hamilton, Catherine Tanner, Paul Little. Who's another one on this group is um, Phil Gaitchens. And Phil Gaitchens, remember, remember it, seems, it seems years ago, Craig, that we had the sports rorts affair with Bridget McKenzie and yes. we had the Auditor General come out and say, this is dodgy. And... The Prime Minister said, oh, I'll get the head of my department to do a report. Oh, he's done one and it's all okay. Well, that guy was Phil Gaitchens. <laughs> right. And he's on this committee. Yeah, so obviously Scott Morrison likes his reports. That's what it just... And, you know, you guys, you're obviously well, you know, keeping up to date with what's going on in the world and... Uh, um, and you didn't know about it. Um, we've got a John has joined, um, I believe. Um, he's coming through soon. So, John, when you're ready, say hello. Um, right. Um, what else have we got? Um, uh, One thing I did want to talk about, Joe, is mm. that just I think um, so many people these days, and no one could have seen this coming, but they just live – just a lot of a lot of people get huge debts, and they underestimate their chances of ever losing their job. I've, I've, I've always found that a little bit strange. I wonder whether there's going to be a lot of changes. I think when things do get, go back to normal, whether people will change their their spending and their saving habits um, after all this goes back to to somewhat normality. You would you would think so. Um, people have been quite cavalier. You hear of quite ordinary people having half a dozen rental properties. So, um, John, if you're in the chat room, you just need – you've got some of our audio coming through. Are you there, John? Yeah, I just turned the volume down. No worries. I'll just finish what I was saying that um, some people are quite – yeah, cavaliers. Some quite ordinary people have five or six rental properties or they've got a share portfolio yeah. that they've um, – that they've yeah. um, got margin loans on, and they've they've completely maxed out their position on a big punt. And you're right; you would think after this experience, people will have a memory of it and go, uh, "Maybe I shouldn't be so aggressive." Uh, you know, it's been a long time since uh, we've had. Yeah, I'm on Zoom. So, um, John, uh, how are you, and what's on your mind? Um. Um, going back to, um, I'm, you know, it's John, I am on Dice Rates, 05. Yes, John. Yeah. Um, going back to 
what your guest was saying about UBI, I thought it would be neutral, but I didn't quite understand why it wouldn't be. Uh, he was saying that the, um, okay, universal basic income, dear listener, is the concept that everybody, whether you're unemployed or not, gets paid a, a sum, regular sum from the government. And it's just universal. So whether you're employed, unemployed, if you're Gina Reinhardt or you're a guy on Struggle Street, you get a, 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 a regular amount. And the idea is that for people who are on pensions, people who are on unemployment benefits, all that stuff just disappears and you just have the universal basic income. You don't have to prove you're unemployed. You don't have to prove you're looking for work. You don't have to prove anything. You just get it. And for people who are already earning an income, uh, it effectively, they lose a lot of this via the taxation system. But um, that's the kind of idea of a universal basic income. So it was that was your understanding, John, of what a universal basic income is? Yeah, that's the one. Yep. So I, I, I thought it would be neutral because it, um, the, the same amount of money is coming out of the government, back to the government, essentially. Yep. Um, well, what he was saying, if you're going to have universal basic income, the amount you've got to pay has got to be at least equal to the benefits people are currently getting. So it's got to be at least equal to the age pension or the single age pension, for example. And that the amount of money that that meant that the government would be injecting into the system would create an inflationary effect that would be dangerous. So he said that that would flood our economy with money and the risk of that was inflation. So when he was talking about government spends money uh, which creates currency and when it taxes it destroys currency. Uh, and I said, well, what's to stop you doing that in good times? Um, the answer is uh, if you're flooding the market with money, you have the risk of inflation getting out of hand. So, Just on so, the other side, though, couldn't you just tax, increase taxes to balance it out? Well, well what he was saying is he, would, he had two things, which was a guaranteed minimum income. Uh, he didn't specify a figure, but... Um, and then a, an amount um, uh, of an unemployment benefit that was slightly below that. So people would want to work if they could, but um, uh, easy access to unemployment. So um, it was basically saying it would cost too much, John, is the short answer. So not about being neutral, it was just it would cost so much you know, and put so much money into the system. Yeah, but I don't know. I think by the way he was talking, you, you could take money back out of the system by taxing the uh, companies and the high earners. Well, that would get the money back out of the system again. You're right. That's how he was describing getting cash out. Um, uh, but I guess would have to it then. But I guess it's not then universal basic income if you're if you are saying here it is for everybody, and then you're taking it away. Holus bolus immediately for those on an income. Why didn't you just give it to people who don't already have an income? Kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it almost sounds like, you know what I mean? Two different ways to kill the bird or whatever. Yeah. Um, the, same, the same bird. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll, uh, I really hope I can get Stephen on again um, 
later on. Um, I'll put universal basic income on the agenda and um, he can go through it in a bit more detail. Um, we didn't intend to, to cross that uh, in the interview. It was just that I mentioned it as a... Um, as an example for something, and we kind of got sidetracked along that line. So that's how that sort of came about. So, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so you're obviously keen, John, on the universal basic income? Um, I, I certainly, as I go along, like the idea more and more. I, I have heard the idea of what he was saying, like um, um, what did you call it? But his idea was the, the uh, you know, like a minimum wage coming from the government. I don't mind that idea too, but I think that would be harder to sell because then the, the, the people at the top with plenty of money would say, well, what about me, as they always do in identity politics? Yep. I thought Andrew Yang, the Democratic uh, nominee, he called his a, a freedom payment, which was a good way of uh, selling it, and it's kind of what he was standing for. And had a couple of interviews with him about the, the UBI, which was his main policy, and, um, yeah, it sounded really interesting. Yeah. So- I'm Trevor, I'm, I'm sort of more for the, whichever way the evidence goes, but I, I think the evidence is in that capitalism just let run wild doesn't work. So it doesn't work for the whole economy. and It doesn't work for everybody anyway. Yeah. Uh, maybe next week and um, at some point soon, we have to talk about capitalism. And, and what I'm finding is that people are arguing – uh, about what is capitalism and what is socialism. And, you know, you'll get some people who say, well, you know, this payment by the government uh, isn't really socialism. It's 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 still more capital. Like the definitions of what is capitalism, what is socialism, um, people who are pro-capitalism are sort of denying uh, that certain measures are, are socialism and trying to adopt them as capitalism. So, I think it'll be worthwhile doing a little um, segment in the near future about uh, socialism, capitalism, communism. What are the features? Um, uh, you're right, John. Like you would think that this event um, suddenly everyone's a uh, Keynesian econo- economist in that you know pumping money in to get the economy going, and and suddenly everyone's uh, happy to provide a greater welfare net and. You know, part of it, I reckon, John, is uh, from my f- sense of, of very pro-right-wing people is they just don't accept that some people are unemployed through no fault of their own. They, the, the current environment, it's clear to them, oh, these people who have been thrown out on the street uh, at a moment's notice, we're all working people doing the right thing and through no fault of their own have... Have, have lost their job and it's it's so obvious to them and they're kind of okay with social welfare for them but they don't seem to recognise that in the ordinary 4 or 5% of unemployed people that some people there with who have some had some really hard times who have got issues that that make it impossible for them to work um that, that's i think that's part of it is that is this acceptance that there are just people who that there will always be a four or five percent who need help, and they just, they, 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 I think they just think that these people are lazy and and good for nothers who are just sitting on their backsides, and they just need to a, a carrot and a stick, preferably a stick, to get them going. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I agree with you that there are some of them that think that way, people like that. But it, they, 
I think there's a certain amount of self-justification going on there as well. Like, oh, I can't help everybody, so, oh, I, you know, that person in the gutter, I've got to justify why he's there and I can't do anything about it. Oh, it must be his fault. Um, so, I don't know, I think there's a lot of self-justification, but there's, there's certainly a lot of greedy people out there. They just want the next, want, want it all, essentially. Yeah, yep. So um, I, I think that's the case. Um what else have I got here? Um, you guys have any thoughts on Australians stuck in places like Peru? Um, and should we, uh, should the Australian government be chartering a flight um, and landing in Lima and and getting our people out of there? Or is that is that not our role? Anybody got any thoughts on on Australians stuck overseas? Um. You're right. Yep. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think if if that person, like the person stuck in Peru, you know, walking into a, knowingly walking into a dangerous situation, then you know you, you can help them to a certain extent. But they knowingly went there. But in this situation, it's turned into a a dangerous situation that they that an Australian citizen would like to come come home. So I think it's the onus is on the the federal government to help them out as much as they can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's going to – we obviously don't know the full story behind why some of these people got stuck there, but you'd imagine there'd be some pretty pretty uh, good reasons. Uh, so it'd be pretty harsh for us to, to leave us, leave them behind. Mm. Yep, yep. Um, uh, just looking around the globe, um, uh, Cuba – so when we when when we do have this discussion about um, how things going with with communism and capitalism, uh, one of the things that will come up is people will refer to China, for example, and they'll go, "Well, China's not a communist country. That's a it's a market um, based economy, and okay, they don't have a democracy as such, but uh, but they're not communist. And you know, there's certainly merits to that argument. But one country." I think that they'll have to concede as being communist would be Cuba. And um, one of the interesting things to come out of this whole uh, scenario with um, coronavirus is the Cubans um, have really concentrated on their medical professionals over the years and they've been exporting uh, doctors around the world to help out in African countries, Latin American countries, for a long, long time now. And there's been some amazing scenes of plane loads of Cuban doctors arriving in Italy uh, and the sort of people in the airport applauding them as they arrive. And let me just see from my notes here. Um, um, if I can get the exact number here. Um, so Cuba's medical brigades have arrived in Italy, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Jamaica, Suriname, Um bunch of other countries. Not one American doctor has been exported by the Americans to help out around the world, but Cuba's done it. So um, that, that, that doesn't surprise me, though, because Trump's it, it, his version of, uh, if you want to call it, isolationism yep. in, in America first, and he wouldn't think about um, anyone other than them, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, Mexico, I think I read out a joke thing last week about the Mexicans uh, 
like an onion style piece. So the Mexicans were saying, "Hurry up and build that fucking wall!" And uh, if we need, if we need to, we'll pay for it. And um, you know, it's it now reached the point that uh, on one of the border towns there, um, Mexicans have shut the U.S. border and are stopping Americans from coming across. So uh, that's happened in. Let me see what the town is. Um, this is a BBC article and residents in Sonora, south of the US state of Arizona, are uh, blocking traffic into Mexico uh, after setting up a checkpoint. So, so yeah, we've reached the point now where the Mexicans are stopping the Americans getting in. And um, always, The wall always was just a symbol, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. That's right. It was complete uh, nonsense by, by Trump. Um, yeah. Also, what I'm seeing in the media is a lot of anti-China commentary. Have you guys seen much where, where uh, obviously Trump is calling it the China virus and I'm just seeing stuff in the sort of right-wing rags that I unfortunately subscribe to, which um, are, are looking at blaming China for this. You guys seen any anti-Chinese sentiment coming out? Um, the only, yeah, go, go, Craig. Sorry, yeah. So I haven't, I haven't seen, I haven't seen that much. Uh, I, I mean, I've seen them being criticised for you know, keeping the live animals together and and having that live market, which I think is is fair enough criticism. But um, but apart from Trump, no, I haven't seen too many Australian commentators uh, going having a go at China. Mm, there's a bit of it around. So. Um... Well, gentlemen, that's kind of uh, the bits and pieces of news that I wanted to get through. Oh, just in terms of numbers, like uh, two weeks ago when we uh, did our first count, there was, I think, 400 cases in Australia. Uh, last week there was 2,000. Um, no, actually it was 500 in the first week. Last week it had quadrupled to 2,000. So if it was to quadruple again this week, we'd be looking at 8,000 and we're only looking at 4,557 as a figure from earlier today or yesterday. So that's good. So that's slowing down. So, so yeah, well, gentlemen, Greg and John and also um, Murray, who joined in earlier, um, thanks, guys, for that. I don't know what happened to the 12th man. Uh, he was supposed to join us, but... His uh, internet uh, connection is terrible where he lives. Like he's in some sort of um, black spot where it just you just can't get a good signal. And Scott was um, working overtime at work, so um, I thought I was going to have the twelfth man. But so that's worked out really well that you guys were able to uh, chime in and help out. And unless the NBN um, visits Paul's house urgently, we, I might need more help down the track. So. Um, Dear listener, if you're not already um, liking the Facebook page, please do because if I send out a note saying that I'm calling for volunteers and helpers on the panel, uh, you'll hear about it and get yourself a Zoom app. What You saw that today? Um, No, no, no. I sent you a a messenger message. Where do you you usually send it out that you're going to? Um, cast that night. Oh, Facebook. So normally on Facebook, uh, I'll, I'll I'll put something on uh, there. So you're I'm not on Facebook. Off, but I've been trying to. I am on Facebook, but I've been. It's a bit. It's a bit toxic, so I've been trying to avoid it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, maybe I should start an email list of some sort and do it on that as well. Uh, 
I'll add that to the to-do list. I've, I've got the time. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, so keep an eye on that. Uh, we've got a SpeakPipe voicemail system, and I know someone left one for me this afternoon, but I didn't get a chance to listen to it. So you can leave a voicemail message. That's really good. You can share this with your friends uh, and um, tell them to watch it and to get a grip on uh, the economic side of things and, yeah, spread the word. Thanks, Craig and John, for helping me out. Much appreciated. And thank you, everyone, who's been listening. And this will be up on YouTube on our channel. So if you missed it or you want to uh, refer a friend to it, uh, give me 20 Give it till tomorrow and um, it'll be on uh, YouTube as an easy link, which is sometimes easier than um, than Facebook. And also, I mucked up the, the beginning where I didn't have the sound on properly and I'll edit that out on, um, on the YouTube one. I'm not sure if I can do that on the Facebook one. So anyway, spread the news. Um, thanks for tuning in and thank you, Craig and John, and, and we'll do on the same Tuesday next week. Okay, bye. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks, Trevor. Absolutely, He's I know not Trev. To con uh, no, no he, he, Big Trev is as honest and straight as he is big. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, "Hey." I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.